If you will please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. There's some Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you take your Bible and turn to almost the exact middle, I bet you will land real close to Isaiah 52. And and as you're there, if you want to take your bulletin or, or something to mark your place, uh, also turn to Philippians 2. Pastor Russ, we're going to forget by the end of the day, so we're going to go ahead and do it uh, in the service and look at Philippians 2 as well. So we'll begin in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. And just to help you know where we are, we're, we're, we're jumping into Isaiah for an April sermon series to, to look to Easter and the, and the resurrection and what Isaiah prophesies about our Savior. And here in Isaiah 52, verse 13, begins a, a song, what is called by the scholars in the book of Isaiah, the servant songs. And so this is the, the fourth in a series of, of songs that Isaiah prophesied. And so we pick up with the fourth and the last one here in Isaiah 52, verse 13, that will be five stanzas of this song that will serve as five sermons for the Sundays in April. The, uh, as, we, as you hopefully know, that uh, chapter verses and, and chapter numbers, they're, they're not inspired. They were put there as references to help us, uh, you know, rather than rolling out the scroll of Isaiah and trying to find it. And so sometimes the chapter numbers don't always work out exactly right. And so that's why we're going to, to 52 verse 13. And the song actually goes through chapter 53. So that just kind of gives you some, some context of where we are looking at this servant, this Savior who would be rejected, wounded, and exalted. Let me read for us Isaiah 52 verses 13 through 15. This is God's holy, inspired word to us this morning. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which was which was not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would give us understanding. That you would help us to see Jesus high and lifted up and exalted. Help us to see the great work that was accomplished on the cross that was prophesied long ago by Isaiah. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. For around a thousand years or so, the consensus has been among Jewish scholars that the the biblical and especially the Old Testament references to the Messiah, they are not a person. But rather the, the servant that Isaiah talks about or the one who would suffer, they would say is the, in fact the nation of Israel, not necessarily a person. 
Somewhere along the way, the, the Messiah became a concept that would be achieved in a nation or a people group rather than a, rather than a savior, rather than a person. And so in Isaiah 52 here, especially verses 14 through 15, we read about a, a servant who would suffer. And who could doubt? I mean, who would doubt that the nation of Israel, that the people, the Hebrews for thousands of years, that they have they have suffered, that they have endured much hardship and heartache in their history. But before us this morning and in the, the coming weeks, as we look at this fourth servant song, we are faced with a challenge. And the challenge is this. How could a nation be a substitute for man's sin? How, how could a moral concept fix the problem of sin? Because the truth is, and the truth is in Jesus, and the truth that we will be examining for the month of April is that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, he is the servant. He is the Messiah. He is the one to be exalted. He is the one who would be humiliated. He is the one who will save us from our sin and deliver us from the bondage and the slavery to our sin. And so again, scholars have identified these four songs in Isaiah, these servant songs, and this fourth one is the most descriptive of this servant, of who he is and what he came to do. Some scholars even say that the Old Testament, the entire scriptures hinge upon what is said here. We will look at that more in the coming weeks. We can say with certainty that this passage in Isaiah can rightly be identified as giving us the description of the Messiah, the anointed one who would be the king, who would be the savior of God's people. And so the first stanza deals with the exaltation and the humiliation of Christ. Isaiah is considered a gospel. Isaiah proclaims much good news to us. It's oftentimes called the gospel according to Isaiah because it is gospel rich. And certainly we will see good news. The good news that is in Jesus Christ, who is the king, who is the Messiah that Isaiah describes as the servant, a lowly one who would come and whose work, whose rescue operation, would shut the mouths of kings, Isaiah says. And so this passage is going to deal with two very important aspects of the servant's life and what he would do that would serve as our course of study in this first stanza. We're going to look at Christ's exaltation and Christ's humiliation. So humiliation and exaltation. Two very important aspects, two key aspects to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And we absolutely need to grasp these works that apply to the gospel so that our lives would be filled with worship and awe. And so let's first look at Christ's exaltation, verse 13. 
Behold, my servant shall act wisely. It shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Interestingly here, the, the story, the description of the gospel here in Isaiah in the Old Testament, it, it starts with the good part, right? <laughs> got, the, got the good news first. This servant is going to be exalted. He's going to be high and lifted up. He, he's going to be the man. He's going to, we're going to see how great he is. And it seems that to tell the story right, though, that we would need to start with like the birth or maybe even the death before we get to the exaltation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Isaiah's song here tells us what's going to happen. It's prophetic. He says, Jesus, the servant, will act wisely. He will act wisely. This means in God's complete and awesome and sovereign wisdom Jesus will come into the world to live and to die and to be resurrected and to sit into heaven. And he is to be worshipped and praised and adored forever and ever. That's what has happened. That's what is happening. That is what is going to happen. This is the wisdom of God. Paul actually illustrates this for us and summarizes it in Ephesians chapter 1 as he's talking about what Christ would do. He says, the immeasurable greatness of the power of God toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. He will be high. He will be lifted up. He will be exalted. Exalted means to be high. Imagine, if you will, walking into the throne room of a king. And the king is sitting there on his throne and you are you are looking up to him. You are in all of his power and his majesty. That's the idea here. But we need to first remember that this king, he's a very different kind of king. He's a better king than we could even imagine. Because he's a servant. He's the servant king. Our king does not sit on his throne and look down at his subjects with disapproval looks, shaking his head. No, our king sits next to his proud dad who placed him there at his right hand to remind us and show us the amazing greatness of his power to save us from our sins. This is the king. Who is highly exalted. And so just so we. In case we miss the point here. So that we get the point. That's why in verse 13. We have this threefold use of the verbs. For being exalted. He shall be high. Lifted up. Exalted. This is not describing like three levels. Or three progressions. That Jesus would go through to be exalted. But rather it's a. It's a threefold emphasis. And so in Isaiah 6 that we read in our scripture reading this morning, we read that what the the Lord Yahweh God that Isaiah saw the angels were calling out to one another. What holy, 
Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. He is thrice holy. He is he is amazingly holy. He is powerfully holy. And it's the same here. Our Lord Jesus, the servant, the king, he will be high and lifted up. He will be high, high, high. He will be exalted, exalted, exalted. And this threefold exaltation, it is meant to remind us of the work of Jesus. He will be resurrected from the dead. He will ascend into heaven. He did ascend into heaven. And he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty with high and lofty glory. High above all power and authority. And if you don't see him now. If you don't believe he's there now. The scriptures have promised to us. That every eye shall behold him. Because the servant will be exalted. And we will all see him again one day coming in his glory. And that's why we read Isaiah 6 this morning, to see this, 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 this foreshadowing, this, this peek into the throne room of the Savior, of the servant, who is high and lifted up and who is exalted. This is our exalted Christ that we worship. But we know in order to get to that place, before Christ would be exalted, he must be brought low. He must be humiliated. The road to humiliation will be the way to exaltation for our Lord. This humiliation, this embarrassment, the way the servant of God would be treated, it's it's astonishing. It's, It's downright appalling. Isaiah says, as many were astonished at you. Many will be astonished at the way the Savior would even look in his humiliation. John Calvin says this. He says, the cause of their astonishment was this, that he dwelt among men without any outward show. The Jews did not think that the Redeemer would come in the condition, in that condition or that attire when he came to be crucified, their horror was greatly increased. Look in Philippians 2, which I asked you to turn there, and let's look at the way the Apostle Paul would describe this. In Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The road to humiliation leads to the road of exaltation, does it not? Therefore, God has 
highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. But he was humiliated. Look in verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And this form beyond that of the children of mankind. His appearance was marred. Jesus was so humiliated. He was unrecognizable as a man. He was treated very badly by the Romans and the Jews. He was beaten nearly to death. How could someone so defeated? How could someone so marred be the savior or the Messiah or the servant that Isaiah is talking about here? In John chapter 19, we read that the Roman soldiers flogged and beat and struck Jesus and pierced his head with a crown of thorns. And that was all before the crucifixion. He hadn't even gotten to the cross yet at that point. The idea here is that Jesus He was treated inhumanely. He was mistreated to the point where he didn't even look like a human. He was barely recognizable as a man because of the torture. Why such extreme suffering? Why such marring? Did he have to go through this? And the reason is this. Because it would take the extreme power of God to cleanse us from our sin. Jesus had to go through the extremes of this punishment. This torture, this crucifixion. Because that's how bad our sin is. It's astonishing that one so humiliated could be the Savior, is it not? How could this one be the Messiah? And that's why we can say with Isaiah that only the wisdom of God could do this. Only the wisdom and the power of God could do this. He says in verse 15 that he would sprinkle many nations. The Lord, our Savior, Jesus, would sprinkle many nations. The idea here, this is a reference to the Old Testament rituals, the Old Testament sacrificial systems. In order to make someone ceremonially clean, in order to get ready for the forgiveness of sins, the atonement that would be be practiced, uh, they, they would be sprinkled with blood or water. Or on the, the Day of Atonement, that once a year grand 
ceremony, that grand event when the chosen priests would go into the Holy of Holies behind the veil to make atonement for the sins of the people, the mercy seat would be sprinkled with blood so that the people of God would be fit to enter his presence. And so why why all this bloodshed? I mean, I don't know about you. When I think back to those times, I think several things. I'm glad I didn't live then. And it, it had to have been bloody. It had to have been a mess. So why is this sprinkling necessary? Well, actually, the book of Leviticus tells us. Leviticus is one of those books when we begin to read and try to understand. It's, it's long, it's tedious. But I think it can be summarized for us really in one verse. Leviticus 17, verse 11. Why this sprinkling? Why this blood? Why is it necessary for the life of the flesh or the life of a creature is in the blood? And God says, I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It's the blood. It's the blood of Jesus. Whenever sin was committed, and for sin to be atoned for, blood must be shed. And this is what makes Jesus' humiliation his sprinkling of the nations so astonishing. It would not be the blood of lambs or goats or bulls that would take away the sin of the world. It would be the servant who would take on the guilt, who would suffer, whose blood would be shed, who he himself would be the sacrifice, the Lamb of God. It's astonishing, isn't it? It's not the way that you and I would draw it up, would we? It's not the way we would plan it. It's astonishing, and yet it's too good to be true. It's so good. It's the gospel. Jesus' blood was shed for us, and so... Why is this exaltation of Jesus so astonishing? It's because the Messiah was not supposed to be marred and disfigured. The Messiah was supposed to come stately and royal. It's astonishing because the Messiah should not be sacrificed. He should be served and attended to always. It's astonishing because the Messiah's salvation would not be just for the Jews. But it would be for all the nations. All the kings of the earth. All the people would shut their mouths because the promise to Abraham would be fulfilled. He would indeed save the world. All peoples of all times who trust in Christ. So we must remember... This king, this Messiah, he's a servant. 
He is the servant who would act wisely. He's God's servant. Jesus is the servant. And this is the perfect way to describe what he came to do. Mark says it in his gospel. Verse 45 of chapter 10. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus' reference to himself, the King, the Messiah, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here's the astonishing wisdom and power of God. The suffering and the rejection and the marring of Jesus, the Messiah, would be better than any way that this world could ever offer to save men from their sins. It would be the complete way. It would be the best way. The gospel is astonishing. Pastor Ray Ortland says it this way. If people do not sense that the gospel is saying something unheard of, usual remedies for human misery, then we aren't speaking clearly. Because it's astonishing. It's amazing. In other words, the gospel, it's almost unbelievable, but it's that good. It's that complete. It's that true. And so we preach Christ and Him crucified, humiliated, But then high and lifted up and highly exalted. And he is the prince of glory. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Holy, holy, holy. And his love is amazing. This love. This humiliated yet exalted savior. It's it's awesome. And as we're about to sing here in a moment, this love, it demands our souls. It demands our lives. It demands our all. Let's pray. Love so amazing. So divine. Demands our lives our souls, our all. Oh God, this is what we see when we sit beneath the cross of Jesus. That's where we take our stand. Where our Savior was crucified. Where He was marred. Where He was humiliated. We thank you, God, it it didn't stop there because all that he took on for us. So that we might have life everlasting. We praise you and thank you for this astonishing salvation that you have accomplished for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.